Hello, and welcome to The Point with Haig Balian, the show where I talk to people doing interesting things in and around China. I'm your host, Haig Balian, and my very first guest, and I mean my very, very first guest, is Ember Swift. Ember is a singer and songwriter who's lived in China for over 12 years. Her 13th album is Mid-March Meltdown. It's really, really good. She spoke to me from her home in Beijing in December. Ember, thank you so much for being here. Um, You wrote that your new album is the best body of work you have ever created. Why is that? What a great opening question. Hello. Um, well, I feel that this collection of songs is just the strongest collection that I've ever put together. And uh, a lot of that is a result of time, you know, just taking the time to really craft these and to really focus on crafting um, what originally was planned to be an entirely pop album. So with a, a, a real focus and analysis on what makes a song popular, catchy, what makes it uh, become an earworm. But a lot of it also has to do with the fact that I have met and begun working with some of the best musicians I've ever known here in the last few years, and most notably Gabrielle Baudouin on guitar, with whom I wrote half of these songs. So as a co-writer and as a collaborator, we are incredibly simpatico. So all together, all of those elements together make this seriously the best album I've ever made. Yeah, and you and you mentioned that it's pop, and the songs that I've listened to are are, are definitely pop. But you know, your music also spans several genres. I thought you know, there's blues, there's jazz, and rock. But really, what jumped out at me was that you know, it was really the honesty and the directness and the clarity of your lyrics. And I'm just wondering, like how. How naturally does it come to you to be so open and forthright? I don't know. I think that I've always written music that way. I would imagine that every songwriter has an element of openness and forthrightness when they're um, when they're presenting something that's been on their mind or their hearts. Uh, yeah, uh, I appreciate that feedback. Uh, sometimes I have been accused of being a little bit convoluted or perhaps a little too poetic in some of my lyrics in the past, but part of writing a body of work that was supposed to uh, be remembered quickly is to try and find out how to be as concise and clear as I could, not just musically, but also lyrically. So there's been a simplicity that's happened to my lyric writing in the last five years, especially.
This is from your song, I Don't Love You, which is uh, your first single from the new album. And you write, stop staring at me. I don't want to see your face. Stop trying to kiss me. I don't want you in my space. But if I were to write to you these words, you would think you're in my head. And that would just be proof you didn't hear a word I said. Um, now, you don't have to tell me who this song is about if you don't want to. But was there a person you were thinking about when you wrote that song? Yeah, this is a song about a stalker. And I've had uh, uh, this experience for the last, it's coming up in, it's a little more than four years now. And uh, and I had to navigate that dynamic for a while. So, the, yeah, this is, I'm not going to name names, but I've been dealing with this person for a while and trying to, wanting to communicate and having communicated that uh, I'm not interested and that it's not um, that it's not a relationship that's beyond fan and fan and performer, but uh, this person has had a hard time understanding that. Do you know if they've this person has heard the song yet at all, or is that yes. something? Yeah. And 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 do you know what their reaction was? Not specifically, but I think this person is aware that the song um, is about this topic. And I think takes it a little personally, but uh, regardless, it had come to that point where I had to communicate it somehow. Um, I would imagine they are quite pleased to have inspired a song. <laughs> but um, what can I say? The situation got to a peak and um, the song needed to be written. At this point, it's calmed down a little. So I'm I'm happy to report that it's not as much an in-your-face dynamic as it was a few years ago. God, that must be so scary. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Oh, it's okay. Um, there was there were some moments of lots of anxiety and um, and discomfort because the person in question is very unpredictable. But at the same time, I think it's been a really big learning experience, and I had lots of support and. Um, made me question a lot of how I interact with people and, and in a good way. And so, and it also made me um, really start to, it, it gave me more compassion than I had previously. And I thought I had a lot for mental illness. It also, it, sorry, yeah, no, no. It's, I, what do I'm we so, do with that? No, Boom. quiet. <laughs> no, it's. I'm just. I'm. I'm considering my next question. I think you know. <laughs> I think for me, it sort of reminds me of of because uh, I didn't expect that. I just didn't expect that that was about. I mean, when I read it now, obviously that's what it was. It was just what what it kind of reminds me of is uh, you know that Sarah McLaughlin song. Um, uh, who, and she wrote this song about her stalker as well, right? Um, and I would be the one to hold you down, push you so hard, I'll take your breath away. And you know, it just it just seems to be this experience that 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 comes out um, from different artists, from different female artists specifically. So um, I don't know what my question is there. It's just uh, well, it's I think it. You're right. I think there are people who experience um, experience music or or art makers from a very possessive and kind of obsessive place and lay claim and want to possess the art that inspires them. And of course, this is problematic because as art makers, we're human beings too who have our private lives and deserve the same rights and um, the same 
respect for our personal wants and needs as anyone else would, but because what we do is we put our our feelings and our thoughts out there and uh, our creativity out there, there is a commodification that happens there. And therefore, sometimes we become wrapped, we as humans become wrapped up into the product. So that kind of possessive um, consumeristic way of approaching art and culture is what I think is part of the problem. And uh, it's not my first time with a, a stalkerish fan. Um, I have experienced them across my career, various levels of obsessive compulsive love, in quotes, for what I do and for who I am as an artist or a person. And that has been, uh, uh, there's been, there have been a lot of crazy things that have happened because some people just don't know where the line is with that um, appreciation for the thing that they love, which is the music or the energy of the show or the voice or the face of the artist. But ultimately, we're not things. We're people. So that I'm happy to say is not the average. It's not the the norm way of consuming art, but it is definitely an experience that every artist of every level comes across at some point. And of course, the Sarah McLaughlins of the world would come across this much more often than the Ember Swifts. I want to talk a little bit about China, if that's okay. And sure. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by your experience with Mamma Mia specifically. So, in 2014, you were on this. Uh, you were on a Chinese singing show that was sort of like a Chinese version of American Idol, but where all the contestants are moms. Um, is that is that an accurate description of the show? And 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 how do they approach you to be on the show? It is an accurate description. Yes, it's that kind of show. It's a talent contest for mothers, but it wasn't just singing. There were all different kinds of talents being uh, showcased. And they approached me because um, they heard about me through my ex-husband, who's also a performer. And there, I think, are a, a limited number of foreign women who do music or arts performance here in the country. So it doesn't take long before people find their way to me. And at the time, I had just had my son, who was in the first show, he was only four months old. And it was across a three-month period. There were three episodes. And I, as a result of just having had my son, I had been off stage for quite a while. I think I had had some shows in the tail end of the pregnancy, but 
um, you know, you know how it is. You have to be off the stage uh, when you've got a, a suckling infant. And so uh, I was eager to play and sing. I was eager to get back out doing what I love and what feeds me. So I accepted the opportunity to go on TV, but I didn't realize it was a one, it was a competition show. I thought it was a one-time thing. I thought I'd go on and showcase and be talked to, and then I would be free. But it was uh, basically a reality slash competition show that I hadn't fully understood. So I was roped into it for three episodes. I was not fully uh, charmed by this show. <laughs> yeah, and I want to. I actually, I do want to get into that I, I, because it's a unique China experience, but it's also this experience here where it's just an extreme China experience where you're actually on stage in front of millions of people um, as well. And and yeah, you you wrote about the experience in your website, and and you write that the producers uh, of the show, you know, frame the story to be about the, your relationship with your. Um, with your mother-in-law, who's now your ex-mother-in-law, and um, they wanted you to highlight your now ex-husband's career and and gloss over your own. And and they even asked you to say, you know, I'm not just a foreigner, I'm a Shandong housewife or something like that. And and you wrote later on, like, you know, how, how can I proudly call myself a feminist and then not stand up and expose the realities to the cameras, um, regardless of whether I'd appear to be bragging or defiant um, or worse, the injured and sulky foreign wife with a bone to pick with China. And I thought that was just really, I just thought that was really sad. Like, I, you know, do you, do you ever look back on that experience and think, why did I do that? And were there any positives from the experience? This is a fabulous question. I do look back on that experience. In, in turn, I look back on the experience and wish I had done it differently, or I wish I had never done it. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had done it in a super flamboyant, flagrant way, which is not my personality, or I, I had been very rebellious and agreed to do things and then not not been well-behaved and done the opposite during the live taping, things like this that, that aren't my personality, right? I'm, I, I am sort of default to the Canadian politeness and respectfulness. Um, and then sometimes I think, oh, what a waste of my time that was. And actually... To be honest, it was, while it gave a little bit of um, notoriety and I had got a lot of people wanting me to be on future television shows, again, for free, but uh, it didn't really nothing for my career here, which is shocking since I won third place nationally and they promised us a national tour for all the, all the, the champions. Of course, that never happened. And I thought that those kinds of sacrifices that I was making, the agreement to let it be framed around my mother-in-law to understand that every show has to have a story, et cetera, et cetera, that, um, that these things would translate into something down the line that would help me progress here as a foreigner in this music business. And to be honest, it's a lot of people said to me when I was coming to China, oh my God, you're going to be huge in China. They love foreigners, especially blonde ones. <laughs> especially when singing in English. And my first reaction to that back in the day was, good God, I'm not an ex exploitative person. I'm not going there to just take advantage of um, of my my ethnicity and, and or some sort of warped obsession that the average Chinese person may have with the West. I'm going there from a place of respect. I want to learn the language of the land. I want to learn about the culture. I want to be 
sort of more demure than the average exploitative Westerner. And that includes how I approach my music career here. So, uh, you know, it's um, to think that being on a show like that would somehow launch my career is part of that mistaken thinking that I was that I was experiencing just before I came to China in the first place. And I, I was prey to that. Um, so, you know, I shouldn't be disappointed because foreigners are outsiders here. That is the nature of the word foreigner. Waiguoran means outside country person, which means foreigner. And uh, as a result, we're going, going to be on the outside of everything. So being under the impression that the that the sacrifices or the the efforts I was making to make everyone happy during that period of time were going to somehow benefit me and bring me more into the inside of this either music culture or this pop culture here in China were erroneous from the start. And it's a good lesson. It's a very good lesson for me. One of the songs that you sang um, on the show was called Lawai, uh, which you wrote. And it's a song that's totally in, in Mandarin. Um, wh- when you write a song in Chinese, do you approach it differently from how you would write a song in English? And, and, and how? Uh, yes, because first of all, when I'm writing a song in Chinese, I'm writing for a Chinese audience. So I have to think of what would a Chinese audience want to hear from a foreigner? And that song really was a, a, a lucky song. It, it just touched all the nerves that needed to be touched and sat at the, on the rock charts for a while here in China. It was quite exciting, um, which is funny because no foreigner had been on the rock charts before that. And it was a song about being a foreigner in China. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, okay. A, a song about a Laowai, sung by a Laowai. Um, well... When I approached that song, I was approaching it specifically in Chinese because you can't really translate that. Like, how can you sing uh, the word foreigner in a chorus without it sounding awkward and too wordy in English? So, I don't think, I, I'm, I've yeah. never heard I, what rhymes with foreign. I'm sure you could find something, but yeah, that, that's, that'd be so hard. It doesn't hard. work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the song, too, was was criticized in the beginning because I was talking... Almost sarcastically, which is a, a form of humor that's very, very uncommon here and very hard to translate. So I was trying to over-exaggerate the ways that people respond to foreigners here, which isn't over-exaggerated if you go to some place like Hohai or Tiananmen Square or the Forbidden City. Of course, you will experience that kind of response to you. Um, but in a general day-to-day way, we are not always responded to with that kind of shock or awe or fascination. Um, so my lyrics are all very exaggerated. And that was criticized in the beginning, saying, what are you doing? You're making us look like we're all idiots. And that's why we introduced the rap by, at the time, that was my one of my ex-husband's band members who did, who did the rapping in his reggae band. And he wrote it. I didn't write the rap at all. And the rap is a rebuttal where he's saying, oh, come on, you're exaggerating. And, you know, 
we're also really good to you foreigners and we're also really welcoming. He says a bunch of things that are worth saying that balance the song. And without that rap, that song would never have worked because the rap allowed uh, the response to exist within the song from the Chinese people. And then towards the end of his rap, he says, but you have a point. And he then starts directing his words to the average Chinese person saying, relax, man, they're all just people. We're all just people. You know, you're over, you're overdoing it. Uh, you know, let, let these people breathe a little. And that's, that's really what made the song. So I'm quite grateful to Niu Mu. He's the rapper that was featured because that song wouldn't, wouldn't, have let, wouldn't have had the legs it had had it not been for the dialogue. And that's an example of being on the outside. See, as an outsider, I couldn't have had that whole voice. No one would have accepted the song without an inside voice within it. How do you sing in a tonal language? Okay, this is a question I get a lot, and it's really interesting. The first answer is the answer that I gave in the early stage, which is partly correct, but only now have I realized how it's only partly correct. So the first answer is that everything is contextual. So when you're singing, you must choose pretty standardized uh, sentence structure and or pairings of words. Not to say there's not room for poet poetic uh, word usage in Chinese, but you have to think contextually because people won't be listening to the tone and therefore they have to piece it together. That's the first, that's the first answer. But the extra layer that I've since learned after 12 years here is that there are certain ways that you have to sing certain words or else you contradict the original tone that's implied in the words. So for instance, if if a melody goes da 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 da, or uh, make it more, make it more coming down da 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 da, and that da at the end is really um, a falling tone. You would not want to put a second tone, which is a rising tone, on that falling melodic note. And no Chinese person would do that naturally as a singer. No one would want to to put that rising tone on the falling note. And that's something I only discovered much, much later in my language learning and, and in my uh, my song learning here. I, I also do some uh, vocal coaching. I started by doing vocal coaching just in English because many Chinese singers were looking for pronunciation training as singers. But since then, I've just done standard vocal coaching since I speak both languages and I teach a lot of kids and people how to sing in either language. And this is how I've been able to analyze what kind of tones are going in what kind of places melodically and rhythmically. And it is not disconnected. So you can't just say, oh, it's context, they'll get it. You have to also think, oh, this is a rising tone, so let me put it on the la note or la, <laughs> so that you can impose the tone melodically. It's really fascinating. And I admit fully that I have not mastered it. My 2011 album is a bilingual album, and I got all of the translations vetted. I mean, I did the translations, but then, you know, polished them through native speakers. I was married to a Chinese speaker who was also a songwriter. All these things that I did to make sure that those translations are on point. And still people came to me and said, yeah, but we would never sing it that way. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> So after that, 2011 was my bilingual double disc, <clears throat> and it was a, 
a linguistic riddle puzzle challenge and a musical. Of course, music to me is always a riddle and a puddle, a puzzle and a challenge. Um, but uh, I decided after that, forget it. I tried. And no matter what, I will always be a foreigner. No matter how well I speak this language, I'm always going to articulate and express my feelings and heart best in my native tongue. So my 2017 album only has a couple of songs in Chinese. The rest are all in English, and, and that's that. My new album is entirely in English. The early stage of my career here, I definitely was of the mind that if I did not learn how to communicate in the language of the land and be able to engage the audience in Chinese and also sing in Chinese, that I would never reach the audience because uh, previously I felt really strongly, and I think this is really accurate about my older music, that I was a lyric-driven artist. It doesn't mean that I didn't have some good melodies and grooves, but that really what I was doing as a career artist when I was living in Canada is mostly using lyrics and songs as concepts. So using songs and lyrics to communicate different concepts and ideas and try and make people think differently or wanting to spark conversation and dialogue about certain issues. So I felt that I couldn't be here without incorporating Chinese into my show, whether it be in the introductions or in the lyrics, which is why I really, really doubled down on my Chinese language study, not only to survive my marriage, but also <laughs> to, you know, continue to engage an audience. And I started to write songs in Chinese, but I've come to a different perspective now. This is what time does. And I can see that as long as what I'm doing is um, musically exciting and interesting, and I can engage the audience in between the songs and discuss sometimes what the songs are about in Chinese, joke with the audience, that my native language will certainly not be rejected here. Mm -hmm. And many, many people, of course, speak the language well enough that they're getting some of the messages within the songs anyway. Um, but beyond that, even if they don't, they're enjoying the groove, they're enjoying the the melodic approach and, and English music is so universal now anyway. It's consumed internationally that I should, you know, just relax on that. And that's why my latest album is entirely in English. And I also think that's why the audience hasn't left me just because I stopped singing in Chinese. They didn't, and I don't, I don't not sing in Chinese. Just this last uh, show you were at, didn't include any Chinese songs, but I often do include Chinese songs into my sets. So, you know, that seems to be, it doesn't seem to be a deal breaker if I don't do that anymore. And I used to think it would be. So I've learned another lesson. China teaches us so much, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I have learned a lot about myself over the last over the time I've been in China, for sure. You know, like a lot of people who, who live in China, the coronavirus really came to my attention in, I don't know, early, mid-January. And just before the Chinese New Year uh, holiday, my family and I left for um, a one-week holiday that, that turned into seven months. So we got back in August. But um, did, did you stay in, in China during the entire time? 
I did. And I did stay in China during this entire time. I thought of leaving. I wanted to leave in the early part of February because I was afraid, and I couldn't afford to, like financially. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that my financial restrictions stopped me from being able to fly myself and two kids out because, like you, I would have been trapped. And unlike you, I wouldn't. I still wouldn't be allowed back because. Um, I wouldn't have had the appropriate passport to come back. But in the early days, as a, as a touring musician, that could not have been easy for you. Yeah, well, I'm not no longer a full time touring musician. I was doing two steady tours a year with certainly lots of one offs or quick jaunts around China or Asia. But my two steady tours for the last three years were in Europe. Well, that's not true. I also ended up going back to Canada usually once a year or so. And tacking on shows, but that was also a mixture of seeing family and friends. So yeah, twenty、uh, twenty, I had three tours, including some festivals in the summer that were so exciting because they were festivals that I'd been wanting to do for a while. That of course got canceled. So one in North America and two in Europe. And、uh, at first, that was totally devastating. But I came to. I feel I feel okay about it now. I think if、um, if the whole world has experienced the same kind of pause, the same kind of requirement to just sit back and wait for things to shift again, then you know I'm no worse off or no better off than anyone else in that department. So it was the lack of performance at all that was really much more difficult, rather than the lack of touring. It was not being on stage, not being able to to do what I do, which is not. A pre-recorded thing. It's not a solo in front of a camera or solo in front of a phone or iPad or whatever. Live broadcasting is not what I do. What I do is what what you experienced at the gig the other the other night. So it's just it's got to be live for me. Well, Ember Swift, thank you so much for talking with me, and good luck with the new album. I'm really looking forward to hearing all of it. Mm, thank you, and thank you for having me on your podcast.、Oh, wow. I can't wait to hear more of it. Well, me too. <laughs> My thanks to Ember Swift. The new album again is Mid March Meltdown. Look for release dates at All Things Ember Swift on emberswift dot com. Next week on the Point, I'm speaking to two Beijing based comics, Eric Selly and Edson Oya. I'll talk to you then.